Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. The grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, be with all of us gathered here and in sister churches all over the region and world today. I want to welcome you, but invite you now to turn in your Bibles or on your devices uh, to two places in Scripture. They're printed in here in the order of worship, uh, but I also want to invite the rest of our church family worshiping with us in the Family Life Center to turn in your Bibles as well to two places. Uh, The first is Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 43, Luke 6, 43. And then we're going to reach over and grab one verse out of Galatians, Galatians 6, verse 7. So Luke chapter 6, beginning in 43, and Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. Hear these words. Jesus is speaking, and he says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor, again, does a a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. Figs are not gathered from, from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The, the good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good. And an evil person out of evil treasure produces evil. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And then reaching over to Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, we pick up this concluding truth. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for you reap whatever you sow. Uh, The reading of the sacred word. It's reliable, and it can be trusted. Let's take just a moment now on our way toward the study of the sacred word to offer a word of prayer uh, to the one who is listening uh, to the deepest part of us today. Let's pray. God, on this day, we have come to this moment from a variety of places. We come here not by accident, but by design. We gather in this place, on this campus, to worship and adore you, yes, simply because you are worth it. You are worth every word, you're worth every thought, every emotion, you're worth all of our doubting, all of our struggling. And you have invited us to bring it before you, and so we do. But we also come today aware that when we worship you, when we fix our mind's attention upon you and our heart's affection upon you, we we recognize uh, 
that there is something that shifts within us. Something that changes within us. And those who are hurting find healing. And those who are doubting find belief. And those perhaps who are afraid and isolated and alone find a sense of beauty in the community of one another as we recognize that we are never alone, ever. So, Lord, on the way towards studying your sacred word, we say it out loud. We come here deliberately. We need your help. May your spirit in this moment awaken an awareness within us of whatever it is you desire from us that in this hurting and broken world we may be agents of reconciliation and change. Even now we listen to the sound of sirens. We recognize that those sirens symbolize alarm, struggle, potential danger. We not only pray for the first responders, whoever may be responding right now to whatever crisis that may be, but we pull the sound of that call into this moment of prayer as we are fully aware that this world is in crisis. Call us, Lord, to respond in grace. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord of life. Amen. So years ago, when I was a younger man, Laura and I, early in our marriage, went out to dinner one night. It's what we love to do. There's not much more we love to do than to find new places to eat dinner together. And this restaurant was recommended. It was a nice restaurant. And we were told by trusted friends, you'll love it. And we, we went. We got dressed and, and we went to this restaurant to enjoy a meal. And, and I should have known something was wrong when we showed up. And everyone there was dressed better than we were. I mean, it, we weren't, you know, slouchy. We weren't like in flip-flops and shorts or something. But, but we walked in, we recognized everybody else was, was dressed far more elegantly than we. I also should have known that there may have been a mismatch. There may have been a problem when the maitre d' walked us to the table, but before walking us to the table, I promise you, he gave me one of these numbers. <laughs> and on the way to the table, we walked into the dining room, and there was this gorgeous room spread with tables that were covered with linen tablecloths. They were gorgeous, real silver, already set out, linen napkins draped across in such the the, the beautiful way, and, and, and I can't say for sure that this happened. I think it did. Laura says it didn't, but I, I, I'm sure that when we walked in, the, the classical music that had been playing and the, the sound, the, the sound of, of silver uh, working against uh, finely decorated china and the low murmur of conversations in the room came to a halt, and I promise you I heard a record scratch off of its surface. <laughs> as they looked at us as if to say, what are you, who let you in here? 
Well, we went to the table and we sat down and, and, and then the man, the server, came over to me and he takes, he takes the, the, the napkin and, and tries to, what he was trying to do was put it in my lap. And so he took the napkin and I was trying to reach for it. And he kept, you know, trying to put it in my lap. I said, give me the, I know what to do with the napkin. Granted, most of the places we had been had napkins on a spool on top of the table that you rip off and throw away. But I put the napkin and he handed us the two menus, one of which had no prices on it. We looked on the menu and we didn't have any money. We were early in our marriage and we were on a budget and, and, and we looked and truly the only thing we could afford on the menu that had prices on it was an appetizer for 20 bucks. Laura leans over to me and she whispers this. We can't afford this. I lean back over to Laura and I said, I know. <laughs> she said, what are we going to do? And I said, follow my lead. <laughs> now, Lauren knows by now that when she hears me say, follow my lead, it can get a little, but she knows to follow my lead. I leaned over and I said to Laura, call my phone. I reached and I turned on the ringer to my phone, turned it up loud. She said, what? Call my phone. She called my phone and I let it ring. And I let it ring loud as if I didn't hear it, like I wasn't hearing it. I let it ring until the ringing echoed throughout that finely decorated dining room. And finally, I said, oh, is that me? I said, okay. So I pick up the phone and I, hello? What? No, just a minute. And I, I made an Academy Award-winning appearance of walking out of the restaurant to take my phone call. I go outside, just outside where through the window you could see me having this very important conversation and everyone inside then, including the server, uh, saw this. I came back inside, hung up the phone, and I went to the table. Without sitting down, I leaned over and said, we're going to have to go. I called for the server to come over, and he came over, and I said, sir, there's been an emergency. What I didn't tell him was, that was true. The emergency is, we're broke. <laughs> and so I did this. I promise you, I reached in my pocket. I can't to this day believe I did this. I pulled out a dollar bill. <laughs> put it in my palm and I said for your troubles <laughs> and we were out of there we were out the back Jack we had a new plan Stan uh, don't want to be coy Roy that's right but we we got outside that's and there was a moment though you know, there was a moment when I realized we don't belong here and as funny as that is, and we have laughs thinking about that, looking back, as, as a pastor, now I'm asking myself, is there anything that we do in churches that would cause anybody to stroll into a church and for whatever reason look around and for whatever reason say, I, I, I don't belong here?
Because for the last four weeks now, we have been talking about the church as a place to belong. We've been in this series called Be. And we've been saying that the church is a place where you can belong, anybody can belong, and it's set up that way by our Lord. We've been saying that for a long time, we may have been a little off of our original design. It, for a long time, about 500 years, we've been living inside what we call the, the believe, behave, belong paradigm, right? For a long time, we've behaved this way. We've said, if you believe the right things, and then if you behave the right way, then maybe you can belong to us. That's, that's the way somehow we've been operating in this Christian world for a long period of time. Believe the right things, then behave the right way, and you can belong. But lately we've been saying, what if, what if we've gotten that all wrong? Because the original design of the church of Jesus Christ, the original idea that Christ had in mind was that we, we are meant to belong first. We belong first. And in this belonging, we belong not because of anything that we've done. We belong not because we've cleaned our lives up or we've perfected our lives or the image of our lives, but we belong because of one reason, the unmitigated grace of God. And by the grace of God, we belong. And in the context of belonging, we learn to behave. We, we recognize what it means to yield ourselves, to humble ourselves, to, to confess our brokenness and sin. And, and in the midst of behaving, we come to strong beliefs about what all that means. And so we, we reverse it. We say out of belonging, then we behave and we become. And we've been saying some things about the church, that the church is intended to be a gathering of imperfect people with unfinished stories. A gathering of imperfect people with unfinished stories. And by that, we mean this, that this is intended to be a beloved community of radical inclusion. You, you belong. As imperfect as you are, as we all are, you belong. But if all of that is true, if any of that is true, if this really is a place where you can belong in your imperfection and in your unfinished story, then tell me somebody why it is that Americans are leaving the church in droves because here is the fact and it is undisputed <laughs> Americans are leaving church as gorgeous as that sounds that we could be a beloved community of radical inclusion and patiently with one another we are transformed into his image until we believe as beautiful as that sounds we are still leaving the church in droves about a year ago I shared with you some information uh, from a report that had just broken in September. It was a report by the Public Religion Research Institute. Now, this is a group of really smart people who study us. And they are of the same ilk and credibility and integrity in their research standards as Pew Research Group, as Barna, as Gallup. And they have observed the religious behaviors and practices and beliefs and attitudes of American people for a very long time. And this report was a, a landmark report 
the likes of which we've never seen before, and religious leaders all over the, the, the nation are attempting to, to figure out what do we do with this information. The information came in a report called uh, Exodus, why Americans are leaving religion and why they're unlikely to return. Why Americans are leaving religion and why they're unlikely to return. And one of the primary uh, dynamics in this study that, that is presented in their report is what's known as the rise of the nuns. The rise of the nuns. And now when I use the word nun, you know I don't mean these guys here. Right. I'm talking about the N-O-N-E-S's. The, the nuns. For a long period of time, it may be that you were able to fill out an application for something and somebody says, well, what religion are you? And you may have had a long list of choices. You may have had a Christian, Jewish, uh, Muslim, Buddhist, Sikh, Hindu. Uh, if you're a Christian, maybe you had, uh, are you Catholic or Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, whatever. Lots of options with boxes to check. And at the bottom of that long list was a box that said, none of the above. More and more Americans are checking the nun box than ever before, and at an alarming rate. I want to share this with you in the context of imagining what it is that we're supposed to be as a beloved community. It turns out that one of the, let me just throw a couple of statistics for you to consider. One of the early signs of unaffiliated Americans and came in the 1990s. 1991, 6% of Americans said that they were unaffiliated. 1991, 6% said we're not part of any organized group. We may be spiritual, but we're not religious. We may have a hunger for God. We may believe in God, but we, we're not part of any church or organized religion. 6% unaffiliated. By the end of the 90s, 14% were unaffiliated. In 2012, that number had climbed to 20%. And today, 25% of our nation, 25% of our people, claim to have no religious affiliation whatsoever. 25% of the population, nuns. Let that kind of sink in for just a minute. A quarter of our population unaffiliated. Which means depending on how you divide up the religious subgroups of the nation, that makes the nuns the single largest and fastest growing sub-religious group in America. The largest religious group in America are the nuns. And one of the most contributing factors to those who are swelling the ranks of the nuns, the report says, young people. That young people, now granted, after having a birthday this past week, I define that a little bit differently every year. But they define young people as 18 to 29 years of, old, years of age. And they say that among the nuns, this is the fastest growing subgroup of those who no longer affiliate with any particular religion. Turns out that 39% of these young people you call them millennials. You can, you can define that in a variety of ways. In fact, the definition for millennial is kind of a fuzzy definition. 
but loosely speaking, those who were born in the last 20 years of last century and who come of age in the first 20 years of this century, that's loosely speaking, uh, the people who this report is talking about. That 39% of them are unaffiliated. That's three times the number of unaffiliated seniors. Because there are unaffiliated seniors as well, but there's only 13% of the senior population says that they are unaffiliated. That's three times the number. And you may say to yourself, well, but yes, but that's normal, isn't it? I mean, if you're in your 20s, isn't that normal to kind of take a, take a kind of uh, gap year in your faith? Well, you kind of go away, then maybe you get married, have kids, and you come back, and that's normal. Yeah, sure, it's always been the case, but today it is four times as prevalent in the 20-somethings than it was one generation ago. Four times. In, in other words, in 1986, only 10% of young people were unaffiliated. Now it's nearly 40 and one of the factors that contributes to this rise, this surge of the nuns, is what is known as switching. Switching simply means this. You're raised in the church or you're raised in a particular faith or a religion, but at some point you leave, you switch, you walk away from faith. Here's a couple of numbers to consider. One in five Americans switch. One in five, nearly 20% of Americans at one point or another leave the faith of their childhood. They walk away from it. And maybe the most stunning information that came out of this report is that not just are 20% of Americans walking away, but when they walk away, most usually walk away by their 18th birthday. 62% of those who switch and become unaffiliated, 62% of them, make that decision by the time they're 18 years of age. As if it weren't daunting enough, let me throw one or two more um, embers or, or logs onto this, this fire. I want you to consider the word uh, retention. We always talk about retaining those who we raise, retaining them in the faith. Do you know hmm, that the nuns have a better retention rate than people of faith? So if you were raised a nun, if you were raised unaffiliated in your family, you are more likely to remain unaffiliated as an adult. Here's an example. In 1970s, in the 1970s, one-third of the people who were raised nuns continued to be nuns all through the rest of their adult life. 34% of those who were raised nuns remained nuns. In the 1990s, that number jumps to 53%. If you were raised none, 53% of those who were raised none were likely to remain none all through their adult life. It continues on. Today, 66%. 66% of those who were never raised in the church are likely to never come to church. And it gets even more daunting. For those who are under 50 years of age, for those under 50, the number is 74%. Just, I just want you to drink that in for a minute. For those who were never raised in church, 74% are likely to remain unaffiliated throughout the rest of their lives. And as daunting or sobering as all of that information is, we're not sharing information just to share information. I want to share that to ask a major question. 
Why? Why? Well, the report lists all kinds of reasons why one in five Americans are walking away from church. They list all kinds of reasons. The number one reason, more than 60% said they walked away from church because they stopped believing in the teachings of their religion. Now, we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But 60% of those who walked away and said, I'm done, I'm finished, they stopped believing in the teachings of their religion. Another one of the top six reasons was they said, well, my family was never really religious growing up. 32% said we weren't really religious, therefore we remain not really religious. A third reason, 29% cite negative uh, teachings about or treatment of gay and lesbian people were uh, formative in their decision, 29%, in their decision to leave church, the way they saw their church treating people. The next, sexual abuse scandal. Clergy sexual abuse. 19 people cited clergy sexual abuse as a reason why they walk away. 18% said they had a traumatic event in their life that caused them to walk. And finally, 16% said the church had become too focused on politics. Now, they listed all kinds of other reasons why one in five Americans are walking away from the church. They listed divorce has a factor, religiously mixed marriages, race, ethnicity, gender, education level. All of these are factors as to why many are walking away from the church. But I am stunned mostly by one. The top reason. 60% said they walk away from church because they stopped believing in the teachings of their childhood religion. Can we think about that for just a minute? Now, I get it. I mean, if, if I'm confronted with a certain teaching or a belief that Jesus never taught, then sure, I'm likely to give it up because the church has been guilty for a long time of putting words in the mouth of Jesus. And we say, yes, this is what it means to be a Christian, and they're about things that Jesus never said. But for you and me, the teachings of our religion are the teachings of Jesus, the things Jesus said, the, the things that Jesus showed. And, and I get it. There are many who are walking away because they think to be a Christian, you've got to be anti-science and anti-this group and anti-this and anti-that group. A good rule of thumb is if your church and your faith and your religion is known mostly for what it's against rather than for what it's for, it's not likely the religion of Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there are some teachings, however, that are at the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And yet, one in five Americans are walking away from those teachings. And I'm asking myself, well, which teachings are so bad that they would walk away from? Which of Jesus' teachings? It, I mean, when I think about the teachings of Jesus, this is what comes to my mind. Jesus, let us, therefore, beloved, love one another, for love is from God. Or, or love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Is that, is that it? 
Or maybe forgive others as you have been forgiven. Or, or, or maybe if you have two coats and you see a brother who has no coat, give him yours. Or maybe uh, if you see someone who is hungry, give them food. Thirsty, give them drink. Stranger, welcome them in. Are they sick? Care for them. Are they in prison? Visit them. These are the teachings of Jesus. And I'm telling you, I have never met an unbeliever who has a problem with those teachings. Some of my favorite people on the planet are unbelievers. And some of the most raw, authentic, real conversations we have are with people who may not be called Christians, but they don't have a problem with anything I just said, that Jesus said. And I'm asking myself, then what in the world would cause one in five of them to walk away? Well, beloved, I believe it is this to the core of me. I believe it is that it's not the teachings of Jesus that are causing the nuns to rise. It's Christians who have an inability to demonstrate the teachings of Jesus in the way that we live. It's not that there's a problem with the teachings of Jesus. There's a problem with the delivery system. This is why I think about the words of Brennan Manning who said the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I think about Gandhi, who said, I don't have any problem with your Jesus. I love your Jesus. It's his followers I have a problem with. Because his followers are so very unlike your Jesus. This is why I think about Peter Rollins, a very edgy theologian, writer. I like to listen to him. He, and he is he's at the end of this seminar. He's been speaking for two hours about Jesus and life and the kingdom of God. And somebody in the back of the room said, uh, but Peter, you haven't said anything about the resurrection tonight. Do you deny the resurrection? Do you not believe in the, do you deny the resurrection? And he thought for a moment and Peter gave the brilliant, most appropriate answer. He said, do I deny the resurrection? Well, yeah. Of course I deny the resurrection. I deny the resurrection every time I ignore someone who is hungry and I don't give them something to eat. If they're thirsty and I don't give them something to drink if they're a stranger and I don't welcome them. I, yes, I deny the resurrection. Every time that I try to impose my will and my way upon life or others instead of humbly yielding myself like the one who was crucified and then raised from the dead, then yes, I deny the resurrection through my behavior. One in five people are leaving the church. But it's not because of the teachings of Jesus. It's because of a word I'd like to put out before us today. Congruency. See, this is what Jesus said in the text we read a moment ago. In, in the text we get 
to, we're going to get to congruency in just a minute. In the text we read just a minute ago, Jesus said, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Beloved, can I just remind you that you are bearing fruit today. And you may not want to, you may not know that you were bearing it, but you're bearing it. Your life is producing fruit, whether you like it or not. Fruit is the result of the way that you're living. It's the result of whatever it is that's on the inside. Your fruit may be good fruit, it may be bad fruit, but you're producing fruit. And here's one more thing about fruit. Fruit tells your secrets. Fruit tells your secrets because whatever fruit you're producing reveals the condition of the soil that is on the inside that's why jesus went on in the next verse to say these words the good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good and the evil person out of evil treasure produces evil for it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. In other words, whatever is in you is gonna come out. Whatever you have cultivated on your interior life is going to result in some kind of fruit, good or bad. The question is, what are you cultivating on the inside? Because here's the rub, the world is watching. The world is paying attention to the fruit of your life. And if they see a fruit that does not match whatever it is that you say you believe on the inside, then what you believe on the inside is worthless. Faith without works is dead. So you say you believe in the teachings of Jesus. The question is, do you live in such a way that your life is the evidence of that deep belief? And now we come to the word I gave you a preview to a moment ago, congruency. Do you know what it means to be congruent? Congruent is from the Latin congruere, which means to agree or to come together or meet together. To be spiritually congruent means that your inner life and your outer life, well, they come together. There's, there's no pretension. There's no faking. There, there's no... Uh, uh, disingenuous living what's on the inside can be seen on the outside you're congruent and you and I are called to live congruent lives but the trouble is if gone unchecked we live spiritually incongruent lives because we become perfectly content saying we believe this long list of things about Jesus these are great teachings we, we affirm all of them we embrace all of them all of them but then we live in such a way that sometimes is in stark contrast to the very things that he said. That means we live spiritually incongruent lives. How congruent is your life? Does the way that you speak to others match what Jesus said about you and about others? Does the way that you behave with others, does the way that you think about the world, well, is it, is it congruent with what Jesus said we ought to think about the world? Your opinions about global and national politics, 
about the strife in your family and extended family, about the thing going on at work or maybe in, in the cubicle next door or at school, it, is it possible that your opinion is formed by something other than the teachings of Jesus? Because if it is, we are dangerously moving into more of a spiritually incongruent life. It is all about the teachings of Jesus. So, to live an incongruent life, do, do I need to paint it even more? It's like the man who's in a traffic light. He's at the traffic light, he's red, and he's getting upset because the car in front of him is this woman, and she's on her phone. And she won't get off the phone. She's not paying attention, and he's getting angry. And he knows what's going to happen, and sure enough, it happened. The light turned green, and she didn't see it, so she, he first gave a little friendly doo-doo. Uh-huh. But it didn't help. She still continued to do the thing that she did. Now it's yellow, and she's about to miss it. He lays on the horn. She wakes up, realizes it, takes off right before it turns red now he's stuck there and he is fuming oh man he lays on the horn he rolls his window down he tells her that she's number one (laughs) he's cussing he's yelling he's veins popping out on his face he's and then he looks in the rearview mirror and there's the blue lights of a police car I know how to make that sound because I've heard that sound. <laughs> police car, policeman comes up and he says, would you step out of the car, please? And, and he steps out and says, what have I done? What's wrong? He says, just step out of the car. He cuffs him. He stuffs him in the back of the squad car while he runs the numbers on the plate. And then he comes back and lets him out and says, I'm sorry, there's been a mistake. You, you're free to go. And, and, and he says, well, what happened? What happened? He said, well, I pulled up behind you and I saw the Christian fish on the back of your car. And I saw the What Would Jesus Do sticker, and I saw the little magnet that said, B, follow me to John's Creek Baptist Church. And, and, and I assumed the car must be stolen because of the way you were behaving. Yeah? Right? Go on. That's fine. That is what it means to live spiritually incongruent lives, that we say one thing and we hold the banner up on one thing, but we don't live as if our lives are the banner. Our lives are the banner. So the other day, Nathan, uh, who's across the hall, down, down the hallway here, Nathan bought a bunch of bracelets. Bracelets that I haven't seen in about 30 years. You remember these, WWJD? Man, I hadn't seen one of these in about 30 years. It's it's going old school now. WWJD, do you remember when it used to be about what Jesus would do? Does your life match what Jesus would do? Is it congruent? Is it congruent with what you say? Is it congruent with what you post on Snapchat? and Twitter, and Instagram, and Facebook. I advocate a new bracelet. I hope somebody, maybe down the hall, across in the family, would make me a new bracelet. WWJT, what would Jesus tweet? (laughs) Because that is another platform by which we demonstrate congruency is your digital identity 
congruent with your spiritual identity, right? So we can talk all, so now what do we do about all this? Because now we've described the water we're drowning in. Where in the world is a life raft? Well, I can tell you this, you know me by now to say that I don't have simple and quick, easy fixes. This is a problem that we came to over a long period of time, but I do suggest there is a way forward. There is a way forward if we are truly living in a world where one in five leave and we say that we are a beloved community in which all are welcomed, unfinished as they are, imperfect as they are. I suggest that it's time to find new ways of being what we've always been. It's time to get real. In fact, I'll say it this way. It's time to be real be true, be fruitful, be you. Be real, be true, be fruitful, be you. What do I mean by be real? I mean it's time for the church to take off the mask. We can so easily wear a mask, our faith like a mask, in order to hide who we really are and give everyone the impression that our lives are just squeaky clean. Jesus used a word in the New Testament to describe that, hypocrites, which means actor, which means one who wears a mask, which is where we get our word hypocrite. It's time to be real because the world, the one in five who are leaving, are hungry for something real. Be real, be true. Be true about, about what? Be true about whatever it is you're going through. Can I just tell you that it is time for the church to embrace vulnerability again. My gosh, how long will we pretend with the world and with ourselves that everything's fine when everything is very much not fine? I mean, we say we wear masks out there, but we wear them in here too. I mean, beloved sisters and brothers, let me just speak the truth. We will wear the mask. How are you doing this morning? Great. Thanks. How are you? Great. See that game? Yeah. It was awful. Not in my opinion. It went great. Okay, good. See you at lunch. But what would happen if you came to a beloved community of imperfect people with unfinished stories and said, how are you doing today? I'm not good. I'm not good. I just got a diagnosis and I'm scared to death. I'm not good. I'm hanging on by a very thin thread. My job is in crisis. I don't even know if I will have a job next month. My marriage is falling apart. My kids are going through a thing and I have no answer for the thing. I'm not very good. I think that it's time to get true because, beloved, if we really believe in this community of grace, if we believe that in the company of Jesus there's healing and hope, then why in the world would we pretend like we are okay and don't need any of it? We come here to say, I need all the grace you can give me. And how liberating it would be if one in five nuns walked in this room and refreshingly heard somebody say, I've not gotten it figured out yet. I don't know the answers, but I know someone who I'm chasing, and I think he's got the answers. Chase him with me. Yeah? It's time to be real. It's time to be true. It's time to be fruitful. 
This whole story is about bearing fruit, right? Good fruit, bad fruit, lots of fruit. But can I just tell you, you were made to make fruit. But not by just deciding, hey, I think I'll make fruit. You make fruit not by deciding to make fruit. You make fruit by abiding in the vine. Jesus said in John 15, 5, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me, if you stay in me, if you, if you stay in me, you will bear much fruit. See, fruit comes from a well-cultivated interior life. So my question to you, especially in light of your family member who is a nun, your coworker who is a nun, perhaps you who are. My question to you is what is happening on the interior of you that cultivates the soil so that you can produce fruit that is worthy of being eaten? Are you coming to church? Do you go to Sunday school? Are you part of a small group? Are you part of a small accountability group? In fact, students, students who are in here or students who are across in the other room, can I just ask you, do you know anybody with whom you have no secrets? Is there somebody that you can talk to and say to them, you know what, I want to live the Christ life. All the teachings that we talk about, and I want to live up to them, but I fail most days. Will you help me live up to the identity I know I should have in Christ? Iron sharpens iron. Do you have some, what are you doing to cultivate that interior life? Be real. Be true. Be fruitful. Be you. I mean, I know that sounds very Oprah, you know. But be you. Because <coughs> as it's been said before, everybody else is taken. <laughs> there is something so unique about who you are that nobody else in existence has it. Even your experience with God as beautiful or as ugly as that may be, nobody in existence has a perspective on God exactly like you. Which means that if you don't share that, if you don't become vulnerable and allow your encounter with God to be known by others, then there is a part of God's own character that is not known. That's why we tell our story. That's why we are real and true and faithful and you. The sake of the gospel and the fate of the world depends on it. Let's pray. God, even in this moment, we simply want to take a, a moment to confess to you that we realize there's something that you're trying to do in us because we look around our families and those who are our neighbors with whom we're doing life and we see there are so many who are missing out on the beauty of this beloved community that we get to experience every time that we gather. And we recognize that even we don't live up to what you had hoped we might be for those who are hurting and seeking in this world. But we pray that in this hour, in this moment, 
You may do something that shakes us up, that, that yields our life. Help us to yield our life this day before the truth. Help us to yield this, this day before you who are attempting to make of us a beautiful community that the world may be drawn into. We pray for those who we know are leaving church or have lost their way or we pray even for ourselves who at times feel as if we perhaps have lost our own way. We pray that you would show us the way to come home. The way to come home where it's safe to be imperfect and it's safe to be unfinished because we recognize that we are in the company of others being perfected by your love. Show us how to be the church this day. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. <laughs>